0: Um, Again,
1: if you're uh, joining us right now, we are at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. Uh, Today is the feast of St. Vincent de Paul in the Maronite uh, calendar. When St. Francis de Sales, who converted about 80,000 Protestants back to the Catholic faith, was in Paris, a man exclaimed, God is so good because he created one such as Francis de Sales, and that man was St. Vincent de Paul. Uh, he was a man of great uh, charity, outstanding piety, and uh, lived, lived a life of uh, great faith in, in our Lord. Uh, may his prayers tonight help us, we who are poor, to better understand the words of this book. St. Vincent de Paul pray for us. Thank you. There's at least one person who's awake. That's good. All right. Last week, we left off, uh, by my calculation, around verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, everyone who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Amen. Tonight, I do intend, uh, God willing, to go through verse 7 and um, complete all the way through verse 11, which is a fairly ambitious program. Uh, Hopefully, we'll be able to achieve that. Last week, we spoke about coming and we spoke about clouds. I hope that by now, you know and you understand And when we speak of clouds, we do not speak of the physical object up in the sky that m- brings down rain. We're talking about the spirit. What I would like to do is focus a little bit more on the word coming. This is a technical word. Parousia is the equivalent Greek. So, when he says, behold, he is coming, we need to understand what manner of coming St. John has in mind, because it's very important. The word parousia um, means the following. There's this man, uh, Adolf Deisman, who did uh, uh, the first important study on the meaning of the words in Greek uh, in his book in around 1908 in a book called A Light from the Ancient East, traced the usage of this word from Ptolemy until the second century A.D. And he determined that it is constantly used to designate the arrival of the king or the emperor. So it had a particular meaning to it. It doesn't mean, oh, I'm coming. It means that the king or the emperor is coming. It also means presence to be made present. present. So there is a certain suddenness to it, a, cer- a certain speed to their coming. All right? Typically, what would happen is that when a king would conquer a city, he would enter into a covenant with the city. He would lay down the rules and conditions. If the city is faithful to the king, the king will make them full citizens into his kingdom but if they're not, then he will destroy the city. He will completely destroy that city. And what the king would do is that he will suddenly come to check on them. He will not let them know when he's coming, but he will come. So he's suddenly present. That's the notion of the he is coming. There is therefore a an overtone of a judgment. This is not any kind of coming. It is a coming in judgment. It is a coming in authority. It's very important that we understand that because we don't ascribe much meaning to the word coming. To us is, I'm I'm coming, meaning I'll be there. I'll drop by. It's extremely neutral, very laid back. Opposite to what the Greek word imply. Parousia, is anything but laid back. All right? So, he is coming with the cloud. When you put the two together, or on the cloud, what you get, therefore, is a judgment of the king that will be mani- manifest on in the cloud, which means what? In the spirit. That, therefore, precludes any notion of a physical manifestation of the Lord it isn't about Jesus Christ coming physically that they will see him the way you see me that's not implied as a matter of fact in the New Testament in the the gospel when the Lord speaks about his second coming his final coming he does not speak of coming in the Spirit he simply says coming Because then it will be physical, visible, manifest. But in the meantime, throughout the ages, as the Lord comes, and He comes constantly, He does it in the Spirit. And we have to learn to understand the signs, to see the manifestation of the Lord and His action throughout history. That is why it is coming in the Spirit because it requires wisdom. He is coming in the Spirit, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, everyone who pierced Him. So now that you you have that in the background, how can we understand every eye will see Him? It seems to our ears that it is an extremely physical thing because it's the eye. But remember, what is the eye a symbol of? Knowledge, Knowledge, but also what? The soul. The eye is the window on the soul. So, when, for instance, Jesus says, if the eye is the window of the soul, if your soul is darkness, how much darkness is in your eye? Does he mean that your eye is completely black? No, it's imagery. It is images used to convey an important idea. Every eye will see him means what? Every eye will actually see his manifestation. Every eye will observe the physical reality that represents his coming. Now, if you are a little bit disturbed by what I'm telling you right now, if it seems strange, think about the church. We speak right now of what? we say that Christ is present in the church. We speak of the holy presence, his presence in the tabernacle. Do we physically see him? No. But yet he is present. So what we speak of here is a sacramental kingdom or the kingdom present sacramentally. It is by means of the sacrament of the church that Christ extends his kingdom. And just as he is veiled in the Holy Eucharist, his action in the world veils his presence, his parousia. So even though we do not see the body, the physical body of the Lord in the world, we must understand that all these actions that take place are a manifestation, a sacramental manifestation of the parousia of Christ. And every eye will see him means that every eye will see those actions that his presence makes manifest. To see that a little bit clearly, let's spend a little bit more time on every eye will see him. Psalm 91, verse 7 and 8. Though a thousand fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, near you it shall not come. You need simply watch the punishment of the wicked you will see. What will the eye see? Will will the eye see when the wicked is punished? God physically, concretely, punishing the wicked? No. No. What the eye will see is the wicked losing the battle, is the wicked being crushed. We see the manifestation of the action of God. We do not see a physical representation of God. We completely understand that in our lives. We know how God acts through different people. We know that God sends to us different people, yet we never see God physically. at the same time, with the eyes of the soul, we see the presence of God. This is a liturgical, spiritual seeing, not a physical, material seeing. In that sense, we may say that even though the devil perceives reality, he is blind. He does not see what St. John speaks of, because the devil even though is not material, is not spiritual, in the sense that we're talking about right now, in the sense of grace. Hmm? So he is blind to those realities that grace makes manifest. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10 through 11, you are to make the heart of this people sluggish to dull their ears and close their eyes, else their eyes will see, their ears hear, their heart understand, and they will turn and be healed. How long, O Lord? I asked. And he replied, until the cities are desolate, without inhabitants, houses without a man, and the earth is a desolate waste. So, in in the commission that God gave to Isaiah towards Israel, he told him that your role as a prophet is, is to effectively make them dumb and blind. Now, does this mean that Isaiah went about physically maiming people so they become dumb and blind? No. It was spiritual. How did he he accomplish that? Simply by speaking the truth. That's how Isaiah did it. Because the truth is that double-edged sword. To those who are spiritual, the truth leads them to life. But to those who are not, the truth hardens their heart. And you've heard me enough talk about contraception that for you, for you to know how contraception, how the, when we speak the truth about contraception, we have that same effect. Those who are called to grace open up their hearts and convert and change their ways. And those who are not Harden their heart. So simply by speaking the truth, that is accomplished. And the hardening of the heart is for what? For judgment. And what was that judgment? Until the land lay desolate and the cities are destroyed. That is the coming in the clouds. That is the manifestation of the coming. In Isaiah 35, verse 1 and 2, we read... The desert and the parched land will exult. The steppe will rejoice and bloom. They will bloom with abundant flowers and rejoice with joyful song. The glory of Lebanon will be given to them, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Now it's the opposite. Right? Again, are these images to be taken physically? Did somebody transplant the mountains of Lebanon into Israel? No. It's an image. It's a it's a representation of a spiritual reality of the life of grace. So that when grace is given them, they will be able to see. St. John in Revelation, is speaking, is writing to the seven churches as we we shall see shortly. Therefore, he is writing to people who live, who are supposed to be living a life of grace. He's assuming that. And they are supposed to be able to understand that. To understand the spiritual aspect to it. So then when he says, and every one Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. He means that his manifestation will be evident for all to see. Everyone who pierced him. Everyone who pierced him. That's really interesting. It could have been enough for him to say, Every eye will see him, but yet he adds, Everyone who pierced him. Who pierced him? One or two, maybe, right? The one who named him to the cross, and the one who used the lance in his side. Those are the two occasions where Christ was pierced. Two of them. Is that what John has in mind? Those two guys? Well, yes and no. Who, who do they represent? Be more specific. The Roman Empire. The Roman soldiers. You're right, sinners, us—all that is you. Absolutely true, but those are moral. This is the moral reading. But in the literal sense, who are they? They are Roman soldiers. So they represent the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire will play a big role. Who else do they represent? They represent the Sanhedrin, because it's under the order of the Sanhedrin that he was pierced. Right. So there are really two parts to this. There is the first part, which is that, generally speaking his presence will be manifest and people will see it. And the other one specifically addressed to the two enemies of the church during St. John's time. The Sanhedrin, the rulers of the temple, and the Roman Empire. right. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Before we get into this, let's understand one thing. When you hear all... Don't be scientific about it. Meaning, don't assume that St. John is writing to mean that when this manifestation takes place, the Indians living on this continent will see him. He doesn't have that in mind. Okay? All, many, doesn't represent a scientific. Understanding of all, all as in every single one without exception. All right? Because we know that there are exceptions. We absolutely know that that cannot apply. Why? Can you think of someone who could not see? Someone who's blind. Right? They can't see. Is St. John implying that suddenly their eyes are going to be open and they're going to be able to see? No. The text doesn't imply that at all. What other category of human beings do you think cannot see either? Exactly. Those in the womb. They have eyes. Are they going to be able to see? Beware of an over-scientific, over materialistic reading of Scripture. When we apply our own categories to it. It doesn't work this way. All the tribes doesn't mean all the tribes as in every single tribe in the entire world right now When I'm talking about that will apply to them. He's talking within a specific context. We have to keep that historical context in mind what he says all. He means all those who are now concerned by what we're talking about. Yet at the same time, in the second sense, the anagogical sense, it does apply that all the tribes will see him and every single person, blind or in the womb, will see him. Meaning what? They will all have to stand before him for judgment. So as long as we keep the literal sense where it belongs and not become too rigid in defining the words when they don't call for it, we'll be fine. But as, so, as soon as we make it absolutely rigid, then you have to come up with explanations such as the ones you hear from some of the folks who would say, "Well, that means that Christ is going to be in a spaceship, you know, high above Earth, and it's going to be luminous enough that everybody will see it as it rotates around." I and mean, you got well, I don't think Saint John had that in mind. So don't be, don't ascribe those categories of thinking to the text keep in mind the context and it will help you move through it a lot better alright and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him even so amen now that's that's an important statement here in fact I need to move a little bit uh, back to all those who pierced him because there is a text that is connected to both Uh, Turn to Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, chapter 12. And I'm going to quote also from Matthew a little bit later. But let's go to Zechariah. It's an important uh, chapter because I think St. John has that in mind when he speaks of um, all those who pierced him. Zechariah 12. The word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth, And form the spirit of man within him. Lo, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of reeling to all the peoples round about. It will be against Judah also in the siege against Jerusalem. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it shall grievously hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will come together against it. On that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But upon the house of Judah I will open my eyes when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the peoples round about while Jerusalem shall still be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give victory to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be exalted over that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will put a shield about the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord, at their head and on that day i will seek to destroy all the nations that come against jerusalem and i will pour out on the house of david and on the inhabitants of jerusalem a spirit of compassion and supplication so that when they look on him whom they have pierced they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself. This passage, the the chapter of Zechariah, is fairly famous because it is quoted in the New Testament as a fulfillment of what happened on the cross. They will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn. This is a, a passage that is a little bit tricky to navigate in the context of Revelation. The gist of the text is that God is going to pour his spirit of compassion upon Jerusalem and they will mourn out of repentance when they see the one whom they have pierced. Repentance, therefore, is, in, uh, is foremost in this text. All right, It applies to Jerusalem... And it is a prophecy about how Jerusalem will react when they look upon the one whom they have pierced. In the context of Revelation, the way St. John uses this text is when he says, He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, everyone who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. This wailing can be understood of one of two ways. It can be understood as a wailing of repentance. It can also be understood as a wailing of um, suffering due to the judgment. I think both are implied. Both are implied. That is going to be very important for us. And that characterizes the apocalypse as really a a prophetic book unlike many Jewish apocalypse of the time there are during the time of St John many apocalypses of Jewish background were written and those apocalypses had in mind only one thing the destruction of Rome and there was no repentance the good and the evil belonged to two separate camps and there was no change here we see a very different approach we see St John speaking about all the tribes of the earth who will wail on his account will wail on account of the one whom they have pierced and the wailing can be either of repentance or suffering because of the judgment because of their rejection of the one whom they have pierced and we will see that we will see that across the entire text that it is a constant refrain that St. John will speak of That the judgment comes upon those who do not listen, who harden their hearts, and yet at the same time, that those who are being preserved, those who are being saved. This text is also quoted in a very important passage of the Gospel of St. Matthew, which is the Gospel, the chapter 24. If you turn over to to, to St. Matthew 24, especially verse 29 through 30, let me read those to you. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That passage is also uh, present in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verse 24 and following, and St. Luke, chapter 21, verse 25 and following. Those three chapters are called the mini-apocalypses in the Gospels. They have the same themes that we find in the book of Revelation in a very condensed way. We will pick up on those books later when I'll show you how the structure of the book of Revelation starting chapter 4 and forward map to those three passages in the Gospel where the Lord is speaking. And you'll come to understand that when he was speaking he did not have the end of the world in mind But he had the end of a world in mind, the old world, the old covenant. I haven't said much about that here because we're still in the introduction. But as we develop that theme, you will start to see the importance of Jerusalem emerging as a focal point of the book of Revelation. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There are only two places in the entire book where the Lord speaks directly, where God speaks in this way, in affirmation. It's here and in 21, verse 5. Keep that in mind. There's sort of a confirmation to what John is saying about. In the Gospel of John, Jesus made seven great I am. There are seven times in the Gospel of St. John where Jesus says, I am. Those are called the seven great i am of the lord i'll give you the verses and you can uh, read them they're worth uh, reading i don't have time to you know to to stop here on those uh, they're all in the gospel of saint john chapter 6 verse 35 8 verse 12 10 verse 9 10 verse 11 11 Verse 25, 14, verse 6, and 15, verse 1. Obviously, the I am is is pointing directly to Exodus. I am, who am. As soon as he uses the word I am, he's making a divine claim. I am who am, that is Yahweh. That is the name of the Lord. Okay. Remember, for instance, when he told them, Amen, Amen, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay. So that is a divine title. So any times he uses it, it's a divine title. Now, the Alpha and Omega is a figure of speech called a merism. M-E-R-I-S-S-M, M-E-R-I-S-M. Merism. Merism. And the purpose of a merism is to effectively include everything between the two uh, poles. We use it all the time. You'd say of a kid that he's covered in mud from head... That's a merism, head to toe. Do you only mean the head and the toe? No, you mean the entire body. But you say from head to toe. Right? So that alpha and the omega is a merism that includes what then? What is Alpha and Omega? They're the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. Therefore, what do they include? The entire alphabet. Not everything. Be careful. What is everything? Those are two letters. They include their kind. Which is what? The alphabet. Right? I mean, we are used to it. We are used to associating Alpha and Omega with the beginning. That we kind of turn around and we inject that meaning into the text, and we think it's there. Well, it is there, but it's something more important. And if we lose track of the merism, we we'll lose track of what's really important. Okay. So, it is a merism that includes what? All the letters of the... Right. So, this is a Greek representation of a Jewish thought. The Jewish thought. What are the first and last letter of the Jewish alphabet? Aleph and Ta. Aleph and Ta. Why is that important? Remember what I told you about numerology in Hebrew? There are no separate symbols to represent numbers. You use the letters. And how was the law numbered then? using those letters. The law was numbered using the alphabet. So when he says, I am the Aleph and the Tau," what is he saying? I am the law. It isn't just about I am everything. It is a specific everything he's got in mind. I am the law. The entire law is summed into me. The law isn't a dead thing. The law is me. You understand? That's what is implied when he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Because for the Jews, that lines up with the law. When you say, I know the law from Aleph to Ta, you mean I know everything about it. It's a common way of thinking that we lost. We don't have that. And we've associated Alpha and Omega with everything. But it isn't just any everything. It is the law that was given to, to, uh, to the Christians and before them to the Jews that they have to live by it is in Christ right? I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God who is, who was and who is to come Come, coming parousia again it's words of judgment I, the law is mine I am the giver of the law and I am the law and I'm coming why am I coming? to make sure the law is being applied. Right? The law of the covenant that I gave is being followed. And John adds, says the Lord God, who, is, who was and who is to come, the Almighty, Pantocrator. That's the Greek word for it. And that is... That title, Pantocrator, P-A-N-T-O-K-R-A-T-O-R, P-A-N-T-O-K-R-A-T-O-R. This title occurs nine times—I'm um, sorry, twelve times—in the New Testament. Nine of those are in the Book of Revelation. So nine times is the Lord called Pantocrator, God, the Almighty. It is this—the the, the focus here is on God. Being almighty, being able to do what he wills. Alright? Another point that is tangential to our study, but it might have some claim, some merit, on A-U-N-E, in a book titled Apocalypse of John and Greco-Roman Revelatory Magic, Greco-Roman Revelatory Magic, Observes that the Alpha and the Omega functions as a divine name and magical papyri and is a constituent and is constituent to the divine name I Alpha Omega, which occurred in, pa- in pagan magical names. So it is entirely possible that St. John, in choosing Alpha and Omega or the Lord speaking those words, I am the Alpha and the Omega, it is entirely possible that this is also a direct hit on magical. Um, incantation that was common among the pagans. It is possible, not necessary. I'm mentioning it so that in case you come across it or you hear someone saying that the book of Revelation is inspired by non-biblical sources directly, you be aware of this. We don't need it because of the relationship with the law, which is much stronger, and of the audience to whom St. John is writing. He's not writing to pagan Greeks who are dabbling in magic. He's writing to seven churches. You'll hear me mention those from time to time as they come by. Moons puts it this way, I think he puts it really well. By means of these descriptive titles, God is not stressing his eternality for the theological edification of believers, but stresses his timeless sovereignty, sovereignty for the encouragement of the Asian Christians who are facing persecution for their faith. Again, this is not about a new theological insight into the nature of God. That has been revealed to us by Christ when he walked on earth. It is about the revealing God as almighty, all-powerful, capable of everything. That's, that's the pastoral nature of the letter that is very important we need to keep in mind. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Theatra and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. I like this enumeration at the end because that means we can speed quite a bit. Verse 8, verse 9. I, John, your brother. The fact that John introduces himself as I, John, your brother should not take anything away from his apostolic title, that he's an apostle or a bishop of the Lord. How do we know that? Those of you who are old enough to have seen... um, president Nixon speak on television may remember one of his most favorite phrase my fellow Americans he called the Americans my fellow Americans I'm just one of you does this mean he was just any American he's just still the president of the United States that doesn't take anything away from his office but the fact he uses the word my fellow Americans so when John says I John your brother that should not mean that he is any any other Christian. The fact that he addresses himself, he addresses them by his name, is extremely important. You may not realize the importance of this, but all the Jewish apocalypses, all of them with an exception, were written in the name of some famous person. So, for instance, we have the Apocalypse of Enoch. Those of you who don't know that Enoch lived before the flood, and he was a righteous man who did not die, but was assumed in heaven, body and soul. God took him. So you have the Apocalypse of Enoch. You have the Apocalypse of Moses. Those were not written by Enoch or by Moses. They were written by someone who was living between uh, 100 A.D and maybe 100 uh, 100 um, B.C. and uh, 100 A.D., and who chose those names to give more importance to his text by linking it to an important biblical person. It was not made out of deceit. It was acceptable for them to write in the name of someone else. But they did not write in their own name. That's the key. In the case of St. John, he actually writes in his own name. He does not need the authority of someone else, because he has apostolic authority. So therefore, many, I would say about 80% of the commentators of the book of Revelation equate the book of Revelation with Jewish Apocalypses, and therefore focus the book of Revelation on Rome. And I think that's a mistake. I think I'll be able to show you that that's a mistake the fact that he speaks in his own name is a clear indication that he's actually writing a prophecy that he was given and he uses his apostolic authority to communicate that to the churches who share with you in Jesus. Again, one of our problems is the fact that in English the liturgical language of the church draws from common terms from secular terms, terms used with a very common meaning to them. Share is one of them. It is unfortunate that we do not have today a sacred language in English that would map better to the sacred language of the liturgy of the temple from which most of those terms are taken. That's one of our problems. There's a flattening of the meaning. Because, you know, share for us is what? What does is, what is it equate with? What image comes to your mind when you hear share? Children sharing, picnic, potluck, being generous. All that sort of good stuff. There's absolutely nothing w- wrong with it. But it certainly doesn't evoke any liturgical or sacred imagery, does it? It isn't strong. Now let's think liturgically. When we say, notice, John doesn't simply say, I, your, I, John, your brother, who share with you, who share with you, the tribulation and the kingdom. He inserted something very important, didn't he? Who share with you in Jesus. In Jesus. Why does he insert that? Because once more, his focus is on the liturgy. What do we share in the liturgy? Bingo. Communion. That's what we share. In Jesus. This is a decidedly Catholic book. The focus is on the Mass. And what we share in the mass? Yes, we share prayers. We share the liturgical life of the church. We share the prayers of the faithful. But in a very physical way, we share the meal. Communion. That's a very different kind of sharing than the usual word associated with sharing. For instance, in the second letter of Peter, verse chapter one, verse four. We hear that through these he has bestowed on us the precious and very great promises so that through them you may come to share in the divine nature after escaping from the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. To share in the divine nature. What is St. Peter talking about? When do we share in the divine nature? Communion. Okay? Communion. Again, Other examples. Um, Actually, no, I'm going to just stop right here. I would like to, again, remind you that I am following the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. Please stick to this translation. Otherwise, we are going to have... We can have a whole study based on the different translations you'll find in the Book of Revelation. But we're we're not going to do that. Yeah, you will have different ways of being sometimes I'll highlight those but for the most part I will stick to this translation of scripture it's fairly fairly um, faithful to the Greek now what is he sharing again he chooses his terms very carefully three things tribulation kingdom patient endurance in this order Tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance. First comment. All three of those are in Jesus. Tribulation, who share with you. Tribulation in Jesus. Who share with you the kingdom in Jesus. Who share with you the patient endurance in Jesus. Everything is Christ-centric in this text. Why does he pick those three? Matthew 13, verse 21. Mark 4:17. But he has no roots and lasts only for a time. There Christ is talking about the grains that are thrown. Remember? The grains are thrown and then some fall by the wayside and don't grow. And some fall and then grow only a little bit but they don't have roots. When some tribulation or persecution comes because of the word, he immediately falls away. Okay? When, not if, not if some tribulation, when some tribulation. So tribulation, therefore, is to be expected. Is to be expected. Again, I, I, if, I'll, I'll remind you about Matthew 24 that I just read to you a little bit earlier when Christ says, after these tribulations. So tribulations are to be expected. In John chapter 16, verse 33, I have told you this so that you might have peace in me. In the world, you will have trouble. In the world, you will have trouble. But take courage, I have conquered the world. So a Christian must expect trouble in the world. A Christian must expect tribulation in the world. In the second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 12, in fact, all who want to live religiously in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. Who will live... Again, all means... Again, we have to be careful. Remember, all doesn't mean every single one of them down to... It means it's a general rule that will apply to Christians. They will be persecuted. Acts 14, verse 22. They strengthened the spirits of the disciples and exhorted them to persevere in the faith, saying, It is necessary for us to undergo many hardships to enter the Kingdom of God. It is necessary for us to undergo many hardships to enter the Kingdom of God. Tribulation therefore is necessary. Why is it necessary? What is its purpose? To enter the Kingdom. What did John say he shared with them? Three things. Tribulation, Kingdom Okay? Kingdom. You go through tribulation to enter the kingdom. Once in your kingdom, what do you need? Patient endurance. So, therefore, tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance represent what? The church. Exactly. Exactly, the church. That's what it represents, the church. Here's something that is very important the kingdom. In a Jewish mentality, when will the kingdom come? When the Messiah comes, he will establish his kingdom and once the kingdom is established, is there any tribulation? No. It's over. So what kind of kingdom they have in mind? Where do their kingdom and ours meet? The second coming. The second coming. Alright? The second coming. The kingdom that John is describing is unthinkable theologically from a Jewish perspective. That the kingdom requires tribulation on those who are member of the kingdom and requires patient endurance was not part of their thinking. It is part of scripture. But it was not developed. As to us, what is required of us are these three things. To go through tribulation, so therefore don't be surprised if there are tribulation. Do not let your heart be troubled. Tribulation is necessary for us to enter into the kingdom. And then you need patient endurance. All of us need patient endurance. How so? Well, any time you are trying to live a moral life, a life according to Scripture, you need patient endurance when you confront the world. I don't have to give you examples. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But that is necessary. And that's what we share in Christ Jesus. The other important point that I want to make to you is that the extension, the exercise of this kingdom begins and is extended through tribulations and patient endurance that's how the kingdom is extended that's how the church is extended through tribulations and patient endurance all you know any kind of crisis that causes suffering and pain that uproots people that that disrupts the order all of that anything that disrupts the normal and proper order of things is a tribulation. It could be cancer. Cancer is tribulation. It could be another form of disease. It could be the loss of, uh, of someone we love. But it, more generally, it could be war. It could be Katrina. It could be... All those th- those things are a tribulation. And their purpose is to extend the kingdom of God through the liturgy, through the liturgy. That's where the struggle with the book really begins, and that's where the struggle ends. For us to understand the dynamics behind the kingdom of God and the liturgy, and our role in it. I, John, your brother, who share with you the tribulation, who share with you in Jesus, the tribulation, the kingdom, the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I'm not going to cover the Word of God and testimony of Jesus. I've already done that. Let's talk about Patmos. Tradition holds that St. John was exiled to Patmos, a small rocky island approximately 10 miles long and 5 miles wide in the Aegean Sea, some 40 miles west-southwest of Miletus, basically across from Turkey. Patmos may have served as a penal settlement to which the Roman authorities send offenders. I do want to say that we do not have confirmation through um, uh, outside sources, such as Roman historians, that Patmos ever served as a penal settlement, as a prison. We don't have them, you know, Tacitus and Soutanius uh, and other writers stating clearly that this was a, a prison. We don't know that. But we understand that for some reason Saint John was found himself stuck on that island, and clearly it has something to do with his role. He was known, um, and uh, and he ended up there because of um, the life of the church. There is, though, a very important element. Saint John is exiled away from his people when he receives a vision. Who else was exiled away from his people and received a vision? Daniel. Thank you. The prophet Daniel. Between now and uh, when we resume in October, I have an assignment for you. Read the book of Daniel, chapter 1, through chapter 10 1 through 10 read it slowly read it carefully Daniel 1 through 10 remember earlier on when we spoke about sent his angel and I very briefly quoted to you from the book of Daniel okay I'm just planting some pointers here that are going to come back in the next section. I will point out to you that the expression Word of God, the Lord, refers typically elsewhere in the New Testament to the gospel traditions of Jesus' words and acts. Essentially, the Lord himself as he was acting or speaking while he was on earth. I have over 30 references I will give you five. Luke 5 verse 1. The first letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 14 verse 36. The second letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 2 verse 17. The first letter to the Thessalonians. Chapter 1 verse 8. Now, in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Okay. Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down as flames and the apostles go out and Peter speaks. When he speaks, he quotes from the book of Joel, chapter 3, verse 4 and following. And in that quote, so I do recommend you go back to the book of Acts and read that section and see the quote. But in that quote he says something rather important. He says, if I can find my quote. Yes, here we go. St. Peter quotes from the book of Joel, chapter 3. He says, young men will see visions, and all old men will dream dreams. Joel is prophesying that in in the end times, Young man will see vision and old man will dream dreams. Now the interesting thing is that that prophecy as far as the church is concerned was fulfilled literally. Why? Because John, the young man he's the youngest of the apostle tradition holds was about 18 years old when he was at the foot of the cross or maybe 21 when he was at the foot of the cross 18 when he started following Jesus the young man sees vision. What about St. Peter? He had a dream. Alright? He had a dream. Remember when he dreamt about the food coming down? And he said, Lord, I've never had anything unclean. I've never eaten anything unclean. And the Lord tells him, do not call unclean what I consider clean. And that was the first infallible declaration made by Pope when he said, we admit Gentiles. Young Young man will see vision, and old men will see. Who else had a vision? Come on, I need two. New Testament. Paul, of course. Thank you, Paul. He had a vision. Who else had a vision? St. Joseph, true. But right after, after the death of our Lord. Very important. St. Stephen, the first martyr. So, having visions was not, at the time, an exceptional situation. We don't know, but it could be that other apostles have also had visions. It was not recorded for us. Alright? So, the the, the importance of St. John saying, I was in the spirit, what he really means is that he was in that supernatural state where God was communicating a vision to him. The important thing here for us is that it's a cue taken from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 2, verse 2. Now, those of you who were here who listened to the series on Ezekiel, and those of you who didn't get the series from Michael, Ezekiel was a priest. That's very important. He was a priest. Who's John? A priest. He's a bishop. All right? So again, it is a vision given to a priest within the context of the temple in one case and the church the other. I'll show you at one point how the two books line up. The book of the Revelation and the book of Ezekiel. All right. It is important, therefore, to notice that because it helps us really understand how to read the book liturgically, not materialistically. The other important element of the Spirit, of being in the Spirit, is the act of judgment. In Genesis, chapter 3, verse 8, we read that when Adam and Eve heard the voice of the Lord God traversing the garden, and literally the text reads, as the Spirit of the day, as the Spirit of the day. So effectively, when they heard the Lord, they heard the Lord in the Spirit. And as John is going to hear him a little bit later, it was a voice that sounded like a trumpet. It was terrifying to them. And that's why they were afraid. It right? brings us all the way back to Genesis. And that's important, because there are many Genesis elements that we're going to see through the book. On the Lord's Day, this is a technical term for Sunday. This is maybe the first time that we... We hear it in, the, in, the, um, in Scripture when they speak of the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is the day of the resurrection, but also Sunday. The day where they need to do what? The liturgy. So he was stuck on Patmos on Sunday, alone, couldn't celebrate the liturgy, and effectively Jesus said, John, why don't you come up? Come celebrate with us. Let me show you how we do it here. Okay? The interesting thing is that paganism had set aside a day on which to honor the emperor. And that was called Sebaste, from which we actually get the name Sebastian, which was Christianized after. More on that later. So Christians chose the first day of each week to honor Christ, Kyriake. All right? There is that battle going on between Christianity and paganism back then, just as it is today. Remember the whole, the whole campaign? Last Christmas, I came back home, and on my van there was this big thing that said "Merry Christmas." There's a sign on my van, on the back of the van, that said "Merry Christmas." That well, was cool. Well, why do we have that on? Well, that's because we want them to understand the reason of the. Right. Put the the struggle you're going through in the context of all of the church. Nothing is new under the sun. Don't be troubled. And I heard behind me. Why does he say behind me? Why does he point out it's behind him? Because he wants to make us aware of the fact that he heard before he saw. He heard before he saw. Why is that important? Because, as in all cases, conversion happens when we heard... hear the truth, then we see the truth. We hear it, meaning we make it our own. Hearing doesn't mean listening. I can... I can. Actually, it's the other way around, right? It should be I listened, not I heard. But again, we, ha- we don't have the ro- proper repertoire of words in English to reflect those realities. What is meant here is that he listened and he applied. That's hearing. That's what is meant by hearing. Not just, oh, I heard a noise. No. Alright? How do we know that? Our lady, she heard the proclamation by the angel. Then she saw the baby Jesus. St. Paul, he heard the voice of the Lord. He didn't see him. Then scales fell from his eyes and he saw. So therefore, we first have to admit, we first have to agree, accept the reality, the truth, then we'll be able to see. Okay? That's what he was trying to let us know. A loud voice like a trumpet. The voice of God, like a trumpet, goes back to the Theophany at, at the Mount Sinai in Exodus 19:16 and 19. 19:16 19, and 19, we read that on the morning of the third day there were peals of thunder and lightning and a heavy cloud Over the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. But Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stationed themselves at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was all wrapped in smoke, for the Lord came down upon it in fire. Smoke, cloud, same idea. All right? The smoke rose from it as though from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. The trumpet blast grew louder and louder while Moses was speaking, and God answering him with thunder. So the trumpet is always an indication of the Lord coming in power. It is the power of God. The other indication of the trumpet, as he he told them, is that when they blow the trumpet, he will remember the covenant. It is a covenant remembrance. Anytime the trumpet is blown, it is to remember the covenant. That's why in our churches, right before the elevation, what do we do? We ring a bell. What do we ring a bell? I mean, who, who are we ringing? I mean, in a hotel, you might not understand why you're ringing a bell. Why in a church do we ring a bell? It's substitution for that trumpet. In the temple, they would have blown a trumpet. I suppose it's too hard for us to blow trumpets, so we'll ring a bell. But that's the indication. That's what it goes back to. Okay? Write what you see. Notice, you hear, now you see. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatra, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Notice, first of all, he needs to write what he sees. The entire vision is sent to all seven churches. They don't just get a small letter. They get the entire book. Okay? And they are going to receive what John is going to see. St. John has been entrusted with testifying to the revelation of the heavenly Jesus because he has been faithful in witnessing to the revelation of the earthly Jesus. It is his participation he shared in tribulation, kingdom and patient endurance and sanctity that allowed him to witness to what he sees in heaven. That, that is for us a very important principle that explains why saints from heaven are sent to us. For the same reason, while on earth they witnessed To Jesus, and in heaven they witness to him again. Saint Charbel, the Saint Teresa, the Child Jesus, and all those saints who came back, who manifest themselves in so many different ways, are part of this vision. They come to witness for us of that heavenly liturgy. And it is through that liturgy that their action take place. Just as it is the case with St. John right here. So there is a very sound biblical principle for the participation of the saints in heaven in our life on earth. Because St. John, you will see, will go up to heaven to see what he has to see. And he comes back down to give it to us. This is the first time of 12 times in Revelation that St. John is told by divine command to write. He's going to be told 12 times, write. That tells you the importance of it. Be complete. Cover it all. God wrote the commandments on two tablets. By the way, there's something that most people don't know. The Ten Commandments were written on both tablets. It wasn't that five were written on one and the other five on the other. I see a lot of pictures like that. One through five on one, and then six through ten on the other. Ah, he wrote the commandments twice. Why? Because it's a covenant. We're entering into a covenant. I keep a copy, you keep a copy. That's why. Covenantally, that makes complete sense for us who are outside of the covenant. No. He needed, God needed two tablets. He just couldn't fit it in one. You know, yeah, he, was, yeah, he was using, you know, font, Arial, bold, size 76. He needed to have two tablets. Sometimes you really wonder. In, in, in turn, Moses commanded the Israelites to write the Shema. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. He commanded them to write it. And on their doorposts, in, door in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 9. This is repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 11 verse 20. And in Deuteronomy chapter 27 verse 3, Moses commands the law be written at the time of the crossing into the Holy Land. When you cross into the Holy Land, you will write down my law. Here is God giving a command to John to write all that he will see. So that what? It will be read, and remember from the beginning of the chapter, blessed is he who reads it, blessed are those who hear it and keep it. It's a law that is given about the governance of the church from heaven. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse verse 2 and 3, we read, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words I have spoken to you in a book, For behold, the days will come, says the Lord, when I will change the lot of my people, of Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and bring them back to the land which I give to their fathers. They shall have it in their possession. And again, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33 through 34. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will place my law within them and write it upon their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer will they have need to teach their friends and kinsmen how to know the Lord. All from least to greatest shall know me, says the Lord, for I will forgive their evil doing and remember their sin no more. The ultimate writing is the writing of the law in our hearts. It is said that the reason why the Lord wrote the law, the Ten Commandments, on tablets of stone was because he wanted to show his people the hardness of their hearts. In fact, their heart was even harder than the stone that he had to actually write on the stone, not on their heart. But the day will become, what coming, says the Lord, where I will write my heart, my law on their heart. I will give them a new heart. So when Jesus commands to write, again, it isn't as simple, John, you better write that stuff because you're going to forget. So I tell you, take notes. When I say take notes, I just mean take notes because it's going to help you Remember. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, John, take notes so you don't forget. The command to write is prophetic. It is the law that is given that will be inscribed in their hearts because they must hear and keep. That is why the command is given to write. Now, let's see. I have 4 minutes. That is 4 minutes before the end of the tape. I'm already 15 minutes over. But I want to do one thing. I just took you down all the way down through all those words. I just want to go a little bit up and look at the entire passage from beginning to end. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants what must soon take place and he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written therein for the time is near." This is the revelation about the Lord and about his church. It was made known to John during times of persecution. An angel was sent to him to to comfort him and give him strength. This is a blessing to the church because it will explain what is about to happen the time being near it's a revelation that applies directly to something that is going to happen during the time of John John to the seven churches that are in Asia as we uh, remember this is all of the churches the seven represent the entirety of the church hence this letter doesn't just apply to them it has a universal import it will be read throughout the churches Grace is given, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was and who is to come, that is God the Father, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, that is the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on the earth. The blessing is liturgical because of the order. God the Father being represented by the the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. Outside of the Holy of Holies, you have the candelabra with the seven lampstands, that is represent. This is represented by the Holy Spirit, and then outside of that, you have the altar of sacrifice, which represents Jesus Christ. It is therefore a liturgical blessing given within the context of the liturgy. Christ is the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. His kingdom has been established. He rules the kings of the earth, and this book is about to show how he's going to make it happen in a very practical way. Remember that when Cyrus, the Persian, gave the order for the temple to be rebuilt, Ezra and Nehemiah went down and were confronted by many difficulties. The temple was not rebuilt immediately. It took work. So just as the battle was won for us by Christ on the cross, the work remains for us to make this a reality. And we do it through tribulation, sharing in the kingdom, and patient endurance. This is what Christ did calls us to do and the reason why he wants us to do it is that he can make us partakers and sharers in his glory because he's generous and because he loves us that's why he does it he doesn't need us but he wants to share with us what he has so him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father so it's a priestly kingdom Therefore, it is liturgical in its nature. It is the church. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, everyone who pierced him. Now he's clarifying what he said when he said the time is near. He's coming in judgment. And every eye will see him, everyone will behold him, even though who pierced him. Ah, those who pierced him, Zechariah, there is repentance and there is judgment. Okay. God confirms that by stating that it's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the last. I cover the entire spectrum of the law. I am the law. And I am coming, parousia, presence, to judge. Then he goes one more time. It's the third time that he's he's cycling the same idea. He does it three times. And every time, he clarifies it a little bit more. I was on the island of Pacmos. I was in exile. Hint, hint, Daniel. And while I was there on on a Sunday... I I had a vision, and I was commanded to write what I was about to see and to send it to all the churches. What is it I'm going to see? What must happen soon? Alright? This is in a gist what happens in this introduction, and you see why those three parts look disconnected because he writes in a very Jewish way. It's cyclical. He he will tell you the idea once, then he'll come back and tell it to you again, adding more details, and a third time. And he does that throughout the book, consistently. So it is a revelation about Christ, about his church, and how it impacts those who were living during the time of John directly, but also how it impacts us throughout history. Keep that in mind. Don't be troubled by tribulation. Know that you're sharing in the kingdom of God. Be patient and endure, and the crown will be yours. God bless you.